we continue with the opinion of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals in Blassingame v. Trump. Picking up with Part 2, Section C. C. Whereas President Trump propounds a theory of immunity that in application could confer immunity even if he acted in an unofficial capacity as presidential candidate, the plaintiff's theory presents the opposite shortcoming. It could deny a president immunity even if he acted in his official capacity as sitting president. The government's proposed approach ultimately shares that same deficiency. We thus decline to adopt either the plaintiff's or government's proposed rationales for rejecting President Trump's claim of immunity. 1. The plaintiffs argue that a president's official responsibilities do not include engaging in campaign activity. That reasoning, consistent with the approach we have outlined, focuses on whether the president acted in his official capacity as incumbent officeholder or instead engaged in campaign activity in his private capacity as office seeker. To that extent, we agree with the plaintiff's understanding of the pertinent inquiry in the cases before us. But the plaintiffs also go further. In their view, President Trump's actions were not official activity, and thus are not imbued with immunity, because they obstructed a constitutional process in which his office had no role, thereby infringing on the separation of powers. The plaintiffs maintain that the Constitution intentionally excludes the president from the formal process of counting electoral votes, assigning that function instead to Congress and the vice president in his capacity as the president of the Senate. President Trump's alleged efforts to interfere in that process, the plaintiffs assert, thus necessarily fell beyond the outer perimeter of his official presidential duties and indeed undermined the democratic legitimacy of the presidency. As a result, the plaintiffs urge, President Trump's claim of immunity must be denied. That argument, in our view, cannot carry the day. Nixon's outer perimeter test, as we have explained, does not confine the president's official act immunity to actions the Constitution expressly authorizes him to take. We do not doubt, for instance, that the president can act in an official capacity when commenting on state legislation, on a judicial decision, or on Congress's internal procedures, even though those matters may lie beyond the president's own enumerated job duties. To be sure, if the president speaks about those subjects at a re-election campaign rally, he does so in an unofficial capacity, but that is because he acts in his private capacity as a presidential candidate, not because he engages with matters falling outside his enumerated executive responsibilities. Here, insofar as the plaintiff's argument rests on the notion that President Trump's alleged actions infringed the separation of powers, their reasoning tends on balance to support granting immunity more than it does withholding it. The plaintiffs assert that President Trump disrupted the constitutionally mandated separation of powers 
by invading a coordinate branch of government, i.e. Congress, as it carried out its own constitutional duties to count the votes of the Electoral College. That kind of executive branch interference to the plaintiffs works a blatant violation of the constitutional separation of powers that restrains each of the three branches of the federal government from encroaching on the domain of the other two. In conceiving of President Trump's actions as an effort by one branch to interfere in another branch's sphere, however, the plaintiff's argument presupposes that President Trump acted in an official capacity. He could affect an executive branch incursion on a coordinate branch only if he were acting in his capacity as the executive branch's chief officer, i.e. in his official capacity as president. Put in the alternative, he could not work an executive branch intrusion on another branch's domain if he were acting in an unofficial private capacity. In that event, he would be acting as a private person lacking any authority over the executive branch, not as the branch's chief officer. In short, the president acts in an official capacity cloaked with the protections of immunity when he allegedly perpetrates an infringement of the separation of powers, but he lacks any such ability to violate the separation of powers when acting in the kind of private, unofficial capacity for which immunity is unavailable. By way of illustration, consider perhaps the most dramatic example of a president found to have exceeded the executive branch's authority in a manner encroaching on Congress's domain. Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company v. Sawyer involved a challenge to President Truman's executive order directing the Secretary of Commerce to seize and operate the nation's steel mills at the height of the Korean War. The Supreme Court rejected that assertion of presidential power, holding that the founders of this nation entrusted the lawmaking power to the Congress alone in both good and bad times. But while President Truman was found to have gone beyond the limits of his branch's authority into the province of a coordinate branch, he did so in an exercise of official responsibility as to which immunity from civil damages liability would attach. Indeed, the Supreme Court, in the course of later denying immunity to President Clinton, described President Truman's challenged order in Youngstown as an example of when the president takes official action. So, whereas the Supreme Court would treat President Truman's act as official, even though it encroached on a coordinate branch's domain, the plaintiff's approach would treat it as unofficial, and it follows unprotected by official act immunity in a civil damages suit. The plaintiffs might perceive Youngstown as different from this case on a theory that President Trump affirmatively obstructed Congress, something President Truman did not do. But the Youngstown framework treats all presidential action interfering with the expressed or implied will of Congress the same, i.e. as falling at the lowest ebb of a president's authority, 
but still fully eligible for treatment as official action for purposes of presidential immunity. And we see no reliable, administrable criteria for predictably identifying when presidential action might amount to obstruction of a coordinate branch as opposed to something else. That is particularly so when, as here, the extent to which a president's challenged actions ultimately interfere with the coordinate branch depends on how third parties respond to the president. Insofar as those kinds of third-party reactions may be difficult to predict, as could well be the case in the charged context in which presidential immunity can be an issue, a president might hesitate to act with the conviction and dispatch that official act immunity aims to secure. Under the plaintiff's theory, moreover, the availability of presidential official act immunity would turn on the legality of the president's actions, specifically on whether the actions flouted the separation of powers by intruding on a coordinate branch. But Nixon forecloses a legality-centered approach of that sort. Recall that the Supreme Court rejected the suggestion that because President Nixon had unlawfully discharged Fitzgerald without adequate cause, he had necessarily acted beyond the outer perimeter of his official functions. Withholding immunity on that basis, the court explained, would subject the president to trial on virtually every allegation that an action was unlawful, which in turn would deprive absolute immunity of its intended effect. Those concerns apply to an alleged violation of the separation of powers no less than to any other alleged violation of law. In fact, the more uncertain the lawfulness of prospective official action, the more pronounced the need for and effect of granting official act immunity. On that register, immunity for separation of powers violations rates quite high, for the lines between the powers of the three branches are not always neatly defined. For that reason as well, we are unmoved by the plaintiff's argument for a denial of immunity based on President Trump's ostensible infringement of the separation of powers. 2. Like the plaintiffs, the government puts forward an argument for affirming the denial of immunity to President Trump that does not adequately correlate with whether he took the actions alleged in the complaints in his official capacity as president or in his private capacity as presidential candidate. In fact, the central object of the government's proposed approach is to avoid the need to apply that distinction. We appreciate the government's submission of its views in response to our invitation to share the executive branch's perspective on the proper resolution of this appeal, but we decline to adopt the government's suggested approach. The government's proposed approach is highly fact-specific, turning on the particular grounds advanced and not advanced by President Trump on appeal. The government seizes on President Trump's argument that speech on matters of public concern, as a categorical matter, is an official presidential function. 
That argument, the government reasons, assumes that a president would be afforded immunity even if his speech amounts to incitement of imminent private violence. The government proposes that we reject President Trump's argument for immunity by exploiting that assumption, because in the government's view, incitement of imminent private violence by definition lies outside a president's official functions. And the government suggests that we simply assume that President Trump's conduct fits within that category of ostensibly non-immune activity, the boundaries of which the government would define by reference to First Amendment standards, marking unprotected incitement as set out in Brandenburg v. Ohio, 1969. As an initial matter, the government's suggested approach could lead to our denying immunity to President Trump based on an assumption that turns out to be false. Indeed, an assumption that President Trump has already contested. The government asks us to assume for purposes of this appeal, but not actually decide, that President Trump's speech on January 6th and in the lead-up to that day falls outside the First Amendment's protections because it amounts to incitement of imminent lawless action under Brandenburg. We could so assume only because that First Amendment question is not presently before us, since President Trump opted not to seek appellate review on the issue at this time. If his First Amendment claim were before us, we would need to engage it on the merits rather than assume its rejection. The issue, though, remains in the case and could come before us at a later stage. So if we were to accept the government's suggested approach, we might resolve the question of President Trump's immunity based on an assumed answer to his First Amendment claim that perhaps could, depending on its ultimate resolution, the merits of which we do not now assess in any way, fail to stand up in the end. As for the substantive merits of the government's proposed approach, it aligns the scope of a president's official act immunity with the scope of protected speech under the First Amendment. There is no evident precedent for that kind of approach, and the fit seems an uneasy one. The considerations that inform whether a president is engaged in the discharge of official duties, the relevant question for purposes of presidential immunity, bear no necessary relation to the considerations that inform whether a president's speech would fall within the First Amendment's protections. The two inquiries serve distinct purposes and in some sense appear to work at cross-purposes. At a high level, the president is immune when he acts in his official capacity, i.e., as the government rather than as a private person, whereas the First Amendment protects private persons against restraints imposed by the government. It is unclear why the existence of Official Act immunity's protections for acting as the government should turn on the existence of First Amendment protections against the government. In operation, the government's proposed approach would tend to confer presidential immunity when it is least needed, while withholding it when it is most needed. 
As to the former, if the president's speech falls within the First Amendment's protections, the government's approach would preserve presidential immunity. But if the First Amendment protects the president's speech, that protection would foreclose the possibility of civil damages based on the speech regardless of presidential immunity. In that situation, then, the president would have little need for the protection that official act immunity would afford. Conversely, if the president's speech falls outside the First Amendment's protections because it amounts to incitement, the government's proposed approach would leave the president without official act immunity, even if it otherwise seems apparent that the speech was delivered in an official capacity, such as in the State of the Union Address. And while the government specifically focuses on incitement, there are other types of unprotected speech, too, such as defamation. We see no conceptual basis for confining a theory that would render immunity unavailable when the First Amendment is unavailable to one type of unprotected speech alone. So, the president would be denied immunity not just for incitement, but also for defamation or other types of unprotected expression. And when the president engages in speech amounting to incitement or defamation, he not only removes himself from the First Amendment's protections, but he also subjects himself to the prospect of damages suits, the situation in which official act immunity is salient. The government would accept that result because it considers incitement and presumably other categories of similarly unprotected speech to be categorically unofficial. But it is possible that a president, in exhorting the public to action on a cause considered essential or in responding to a reporter's question at a White House press briefing about criticism directed at the president, might speak in a manner testing the potentially indistinct lines dividing protected from unprotected speech. Incitement to disorder, the Supreme Court recently observed, is commonly a hair's breadth away from political advocacy. The government's suggested approach would deny official act immunity if a president's borderline speech falls on the wrong side of that potentially elusive divide. But immunity cannot serve its intended purpose if it is withheld when a president would need it most, i.e., when a president might refrain from undertaking some course of official action because of uncertainty about whether it would give rise to damages liability. To that end, Nixon, as explained, rejected as unduly constraining the proposition that a president's official act immunity is coextensive with the legality of his actions. Yet that would be the upshot of an approach that would deny immunity if the president's speech falls beyond the First Amendment's protections. All told, we see no sound basis for categorically excluding unprotected speech from the protections of Presidential Official Act immunity, and little affirmative reason for doing so. We therefore decline to accept the government's proposed approach.
Part 3 While we affirm the district court's denial of President Trump's claim of official act immunity at the current stage of the proceedings, that does not mean the proceedings now instantly move ahead to engage with the merits of the plaintiff's claims. President Trump moved to dismiss the claims against him on grounds of official act immunity based on the allegations in the complaints, and at the motion-to-dismiss stage, those allegations are assumed to be true. He thus has had no opportunity to dispute the plaintiff's allegations bearing on the immunity question or to introduce his own facts pertaining to the issue. He must be afforded that opportunity before the proceedings can move ahead to the merits, including before any merits-related discovery. Official immunity, including the President's Official Act immunity, is immunity from suit rather than a mere defense to liability. It is an entitlement not to stand trial or face the other burdens of litigation. And, as we have made clear, discovery is itself one of the burdens from which defendants are sheltered by official immunity. The importance of shielding officials from the burden of unwarranted discovery is among the reasons the Supreme Court has repeatedly stressed the importance of resolving immunity questions at the earliest possible stage in litigation. Those concerns are particularly pronounced when the official claiming immunity from suit is the president. While President Trump, therefore, must be afforded an opportunity to resolve his immunity claim before merits discovery, discovery bearing on the immunity question itself might be in order if the circumstances warrant it. The Supreme Court has recognized that discovery tailored specifically to the question of immunity may be merited when there is a need to develop facts or resolve factual disputes to facilitate deciding a threshold question of immunity. President Trump may, of course, move for summary judgment on his immunity claim, and the district court may rule on any such motion once the factual record on the issue is sufficiently developed. At the summary judgment stage and throughout, President Trump bears the burden of establishing that he is entitled to official act immunity. As a general matter, the burden of justifying absolute immunity rests on the official asserting the claim. There is no evident reason to apply any different approach in the context of presidential immunity. In Nixon, the Supreme Court characterized a president's official act immunity as a defense that President Nixon had claimed, and the court nowhere suggested the need for any president-specific exception to the general rule that a defendant must plead and prove a defense. Accordingly, in Jones v. Clinton, the Court of Appeals held that President Clinton bore the burden of establishing his entitlement to presidential immunity, a conclusion the Supreme Court did not address or revisit in its decision in the case. Although President Trump must demonstrate his entitlement to immunity, that burden will be met if, 
based on an appropriately objective, context-specific assessment, his alleged actions can reasonably be understood as the official actions of an office holder rather than the unofficial actions of an office seeker. In other words, is it reasonable to think he was exercising his official responsibilities as president, or was he instead engaging in re-election campaign activity as a presidential candidate? The complaints contain factual allegations potentially bearing on the issue. For instance, that the January 6th rally was organized in part by Trump's former campaign staff and arranged and funded by a small group, including a top Trump campaign fundraiser and donor, or was organized and funded by Trump's campaign organization. President Trump appears to deny those accounts as a factual matter, having asserted in the district court that the January 6th rally is in no way related to the campaign. The campaign doesn't pay for it. The campaign is not involved with it at all. Those sorts of considerations and others would inform the assessment and ultimate resolution of President Trump's claim of official act immunity in the proceedings to come in the district court, insofar as he continues to press that defense. As for the appeal presently before us, we affirm the district court's denial of President Trump's motion to dismiss on grounds of presidential immunity, and we leave it to that court to conduct further proceedings on the issue as desired and warranted. For the foregoing reasons, we affirm the district court's denial of President Trump's motion to dismiss the claims against him on grounds of presidential immunity. So ordered. We've come to the end of this opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.